Hello, welcome to the Election Bulletin. My name is Jessica Lawrence and I am from Queen's Radio. I'm joined here today with two very special guests. I am Lisa Clare Whitten, um, PhD student at Queen's and Northern Slant, uh, part of the crew. Uh, hi Jess, I'm uh, Steve McGookin and for the last three years or so I've been an associate editor at Northern Slant and I write mostly about US politics. Uh, in a previous life I worked at a national newspaper for 20 years. So at the time of recording we are one week out um, from, the <laughs> from the general election. Seems to have absolutely flown by. But what has been everyone's highlight of the general election so far? Not sure that I would call it highlight, but what has jumped out to me just in the last week or so, a couple of days, has been the um, two videos that went viral on Twitter of the NATO summit, an insight into Buckingham Palace drama um, with Justin Trudeau and uh, Emmanuel Macron um, Mark Root and Princess Anne and Boris Johnson all essentially slagging off the US president. I think it was just it just shows how current politics and international relations exist somewhere between a complete parody and a strange horror kind of setup. I think definitely for me, uh, this past week or so has been um, the, the aftermath of the London Bridge attack, mm. uh, and it, it really would have been very hard to find a greater contrast between the grace and eloquence of, of Jack Merritt's father, mm. David, and, and in the midst of what must have been just an unbelievable heartbreak for him, and contrast that with the decision by the Prime Minister or, or Dominic Cummings, who knows, uh, to, to make a, a decision to politicise the incident, mm. uh, which depending on where you stand either backfired on him or allowed him to reinforce what he thinks is a winning strategy on, on law and order. But in a way, I suppose uh, we should have expected reactions like that, given how polarised the country is at the moment. And uh, there are always two ways of spinning every every story to conform to what you, as a reader or a citizen, already believe. And, and mm. this idea of confirmation bias is always we've always had it, but I don't think we've ever seen it as rampant uh, in our modern politics on on both sides of the Atlantic. And that's. I'm glad Lisa mentioned the uh, the NATO summit and, mm. and uh, that story of President Trump storming off in a huff mm. uh, after the video emerged of the other leaders laughing at him and the, that, and the fact that Boris Johnson was one of them was particularly appropriate mm. since it meant that you know his his plan to try and avoid being being seen with President Trump almost worked he mm. almost got through the summit mm. we definitely seem to be having our most trivialized election uh, at a time when there's the most at stake. And uh, I'll just I'll leave you with a quote. There's a Stephen Stern wrote a, an article in Politics.co.uk this morning uh, when he was talking about how this is the worst campaign that he's ever seen in his lifetime. And there's a quote from him, and he says, "Quote: If you're feeling nauseous, weary, depressed, angry, sad, don't worry. That seems like a, a rational range of responses to what we've been served by." This process is supposed to be about what Sir Robin Day called the destiny of the nation, big, serious, important stuff. Instead, there are fantasy claims, fantasy accusations with the combined effect of being more like a horror movie than Disney's Fantasia. Mm -hmm. and I think that's exactly where we are at the moment. Mm -hmm. Kind of going off that, do you think it's the, the worst campaign that we've seen in recent times? It, it, as, as I say, I do believe it's the most trivial mm -hmm. at a time when we need to reach beyond that. We need to actually have something that's more that has more substance to it, mm -hmm. and we're just not getting it. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, things seem to be 
falling down into their um, their, their, their boxes that mm. you either believe in this one particular thing you know we'll come mm. on to talk about Brexit in a minute but that's the that's the shadow hanging over mm. everything that we're every discussion that we're having politically mm. Yeah, I think um, we're in this almost a strange era of anti-politics, where we are more politicised, more interested in politics than ever before, according to survey data. Um, people are becoming engaged, but at the same time, the narratives of even politicians, professional politicians, are very anti-political. Mm-hmm. Um, so that even the idea of, you know, don't mean to quote or promote, but um, get Brexit done, um, is essentially asking for a mandate for uh, us to get over this political process that we're in, based on an understanding that, sure, you're all bored of it, which can be read as quite patronising in some ways. And there are similar narratives on uh, the Labour side in regard to Brexit, and equally stopping, like, revoking Brexit. And we could also go through all of the different positions in the Northern Irish parties here, um, that there is that strand of the anti-political. And I feel like we're at a crossroads of either we are going to become even more parodied in our politics, or we're in the midst of a a move towards a different kind of politics and political engagement. that's absolutely right. There has to be some kind of realignment. Mm. There really does, because how do either of the two major parties accommodate both ends of the just on that one issue on the mm-hmm. Brexit spectrum. What we're essentially looking at today is the the written campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, on all the most of the manifestos, um, there does seem to be a bit of a change towards climate change. Mm-hmm. But again, it's not it's not a top issue. It seems to be we're getting into this campaign cycle once again. It's the Brexit. It's the Brexit election. Mm. And it seems that people can't really move on, and it seems like the media can't really move on from this idea of um, we're once again in a Brexit election, mm-hmm. and how many more we'll have to endure, I do not know. Mm. All right, that's a, that's a very good point, actually, because as you said, Lisa, the, this idea of getting Brexit done, this is just the start. However this election plays out, this is just the start of the process. Yeah. So I, really, you could be talking about another two election cycles mm-hmm. while we're still negotiating over over how this the form that this takes. I think one of the challenges in respect to the climate change issue and every other issue uh, that we handle in politics and collective life is that Brexit, the direction of how that unfolds, will directly impact and restrain or enable um, what we can do to meet the challenges that we are all facing and there is therefore I think that kind of the frustration in a sense that we can't talk about anything else because we need to resolve this first but I do also that said the climate change movement um, I think that's a really good example of how politics is changing and perhaps a new type of politics emerging that is issue based rather than political party or (coughs) specific identity based Mm -hmm. Um, and I do think that's how younger people and younger generations engage with the political more and more um so yeah i think we'll move on to i'm talking a little bit more about the written campaign um and specifically kind of the manifestos that have come forward i think maybe more relevant for us is to talk about um the northern irish parties Mm -hmm. manifestos um does anyone have any thoughts about the manifestos that have come out or um or lack thereof like media attention about the manifestos? Yeah, I guess I would say in general on Northern Ireland manifestos in this election, 
goes back a little bit to the B word um, in that this is a Brexit election and that's more true in Northern Ireland than anywhere else because we don't have a government um, for the last three years. So promises made in respect to changing public services, of which like most are devolved here, um, uh, they yeah it rings it rings hollow. At the same time, and this is perhaps a little bit of a side, you know, tangential geek point, but because Northern Irish government is a um, mandatory coalition. The manifestos that the parties release here can be even more wishlisty than in Great Britain because they don't and will never have to fully even attempt to fully implement it. Um, that said, I do still think they're important and I think Steve can make a really good case for why the written campaign is very important. I was going to say, actually, uh, one of the really interesting things, you said the, the, the Northern Irish campaign is going to be interesting. I actually am fascinated by Scotland, mm. about what's going to happen in Scotland, because I think that has so many implications for Northern Ireland's continued relationship with, with Westminster mm -hmm. as well. So I, I think that's mm. one of the things I'm going to be particularly looking at. But uh, we were talking earlier about this idea that... Um, the manifesto, the the concept, bring it back to the written campaign, mm. the idea that you get a manifesto through the door and it gives you the highlights, you know, on the election leaf, it gives you the highlights of here's what your, your candidate is standing for. But in a written campaign, in a space in the newspaper to be able to dissect those um, those campaign promises and the, mm. how they compare to previous um, uh, manifesto pledges, uh, will always be something that people can go back to if they choose to engage with the manifestos in that way. And unfortunately, it's hard for the newspapers to compete against, say, for example, the BBC does a really, really good uh, item on their website where you can search for keywords in each of the manifestos and just call up the, mm. the, the piece that particularly affects you. Uh, so in a way, it's it gets back to this idea of um, how much do voters really want to engage with mm. the manifesto? Especially as Lisa points out, we have a special case here in Northern Ireland where in a way you can promise the moon and sort of know that you're not necessarily tied to, to mm. you know, or you can claim that other factors outside your control have prevented you from, from mm. you know, following through on that. So. Mm. But yeah, I, I just again on the on the written campaign, I was just going to say something around the, the notion that uh, coming from a newspaper background, as I do, I mean this this idea that we uh, the fact that we still have shows on the BBC and on Sky News and on the radio in the morning, where a group of people sit around the table and talk about what's in the newspaper, mm. it actually shows you that there that the newspaper's agenda setting role mm. is still as important as it as it as, there, as it ever has been. And I think even at a time when the actual mechanics of politics. Uh, seem, seem to be breaking down. Mm. So. When I was trying to think of points for this particular podcast about the written campaign, my mind kept going back to like, oh, well, I've seen this on online, I've seen this on the TV, stuff like that. And it kind of made me think, like, is the written campaign still as relevant as it used to be? And if so, why? And if not, what can we do to almost have like a reinsurgence 
of um, importance and well I think you're already seeing it expand I don't think it's going to go away but I think you're, you're already seeing it out, expand out to uh, online only publications um, but, but British newspapers and their owners have traditionally obviously always had their own priorities mm. and that's reflected in the importance that they that they allocate to the stories of the day so for example we had this absolute nonsense uh, in the uh, some of the, the, the tabloids about Corbyn and the Queen's speech. Mm. Oh, you see yeah. that? I've seen that. Was, one somebody one. tried to get him with a gotcha question. You know, Do you watch the Queen's speech on Christmas Day? And and he got the timing wrong. He said, you know, he watched it in the morning when it's mm. like 3 o'clock. Who cares? Yeah. Really, at the, at the end of the day, really. I mean, and the, the worst thing is you know that 24 hours from now, you know, that sort of ephemeral story will just be replaced by something else just as trivial mm. uh, and that chips away every day at how we see the importance of the election and it, it helps to undermine the fact that people lose confidence in mm. why the election is important and why they should be engaged in mm. it. So the, the, you know, the, the, the press has a lot to answer for but I don't see its influence declining anytime mm. soon. Yeah I think there are in a sense two dynamics in that we are seeing the decline of the written word in general. People buy less books um, and are less likely to buy newspaper, etc., because so much is available online. But at the same time, on Twitter in the last few years, I've seen more screenshots of official correspondence and reports and um, like breakdowns, infographics, love an infographic of a report, mm-hmm. yeah. um, <laughs> all, and also online articles from papers and uh, news outlets. So the written word and the written campaign, the written political is more accessible to more people because of the use of social media, but it's still written. And I would suggest that the, the key difference is that there is a record, a physical record somewhere of something and when that is the case then there is greater accountability. Mm. Uh, One other thing I was going to say about uh, the written campaign was uh, when you're consuming long-form writing uh, online, Mm. uh, headline writing has become a much more uh, nuanced skill now because people will react, very often will react to the headline of mm. a story without actually clicking and reading the, the full story, either they'll share the story, and again this goes back to our idea of confirmation bias, mm. if, it, if it bolsters something that you already believe, very often you'll share a story just because it has a, a critical headline, mm. um, plus the news cycle is shortening um, sure. to, to such an extent where you know you, you used to, if it was just a newspaper environment, you mm. would essentially write a story at 9 o'clock the night before. Um, and it would come out at 6 a.m. the next morning. That's that's just a nonsense to people mm. now, isn't it? The mm. idea that you write a story, you get it up as quickly as you can so you can brand the mm. story and tag the story with your brand, and then people instantly react to it. And then this this concept of news as a conversation sort of means mm. it, kept, it keeps getting developed and, and pushed through the day. The life of news companies is very interesting to me. And... Mm. Um, I think we're seeing more of like these like breaking breaking news almost accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll tweet a story, they'll put it in a thread, and then yeah. that'll be it. They won't p- publish it as an article. I think mm-hmm. that I think that's right, and I think um, what you're eventually going to see, 
uh, newspapers as we currently understand them, uh, certainly the serious newspapers, not the ones that you know do the what time did you watch the Queen's speech kind of stuff, uh, will become more like news magazines, like weekly mm. news mm-hmm. magazines, where there's more analytical stuff. Mm. And the, the commodity news, the stuff that actually has to go out uh, as soon as it's ready, um, just becomes the exclusive realm of, of the online side. Is news as, we, as, as it comes, is that more valuable than kind of long piece analytics? Uh, both, I, I would say both have, uh, both have value to different people. Um, I think certainly if you're talking about uh, news that can move markets, for example, Anything that's actionable, anything that somebody can trade on immediately uh, has a value to that person, whereas it might just leave the ordinary reader uh, cold. Uh, Mm, I would agree. I think instant news is valuable in mobilising action um, and long-form, more analytical um, news is valuable in how much it allows us to scrutinise whatever the issue is. And I... I do think there's a particular risk at the moment of um, our love of instant news and Mm. sharing and liking and retweeting um, is allowing us to lose context for the news that we do consume. And for that, we do need more long-form analytical. In terms of of manifestos, uh, I think that the big thing, as I was looking through them this afternoon, what they're very Brexit-heavy, very Brexit-heavy. In the 15-page Sinn Féin manifesto, 20 mentions of Brexit, full page on the DUP manifesto, two pages in the EUP manifesto. Mm. Um, the SDLP manifesto is actually called Stop War, Stop Brexit. So it's like looking at these manifestos and seeing, particularly for Northern Ireland, how it shapes how we talk about the news and talk mm. about politics. Um, do you have any thoughts on on um, Brexit and manifestos, Lisa? I'm sure <laughs> you many, have many. Too many thoughts. Yeah, I I would say in general, looking at the manifestos and this election for Northern Ireland, Brexit has um, reignited existential questions that were relatively settled um, for Northern Ireland and particularly how um, the last few months have unfolded, um, that the deal that is currently in Boris's back pocket really does push Northern Ireland to consider what is more important um, economically and practically um, in how we trade and how we understand our relations with our immediate neighbours in these islands. So because Brexit is a pressure force for Northern Irish politics and society, but it didn't originate here, so it came from outside. So there is a way in which it's shaking up those traditional um, divides in our society. Um, And so it could be that Brexit is that kind of catalyst for us to uh, realign here um, and we've seen a little bit of that in like a, a surge for alliance support um, and clearly the SDLP and UUP in this election are gunning for that uh, um, so manifestos yes are Brexit heavy in a sense they can't avoid it we can't avoid it for better and worse. I was just going to tie it back again really quickly to the written campaign mm-hmm. uh, which is another interesting thought this idea that because we haven't had a local administration we haven't had a government for mm-hmm. so long uh, that, um, that, that journalism is in a way sort of filling the void mm-hmm. um, because if you look at Sam McBride's book uh, on the RH, RHI uh, issue Excellent. I mean that in a sense that book has taken the place of the inquiry 
Hmm. You know, because now people are reading the book and they're mm-hmm. saying, oh my goodness, I had no idea it was mm-hmm. as bad as that. Uh, and so in a way that's undercut whatever the inquiry report comes, the Cochrane report, is mm-hmm. it? The, the, yeah. the report that's that, that eventually comes out yeah. about that. People will have already read yeah. Sam's book. And yeah. so in a way that's another sort of yay for journalism mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. kind of thing. So yeah. and it's, it's just funny to think that like, you know, everyone thought that two years ago this would have been sorted and dealt with. Thought that we'd, oh, once we had passed Article 50, March 2017, that would have been done and over by March 2019. No. Basically, the language of the back page has moved to the front page. Mm. You know, and if you if you think about think back to um, ahead of the 2016 referendum and ahead of the 2017 election, and now as well. I mean, essentially, what's the the media's depiction of the EU? Mm. And its leaders uh, mm. was virtually indistinguishable from how the back pages used to treat the next opponents of the England football team, for mm. example. And of course, this all goes back to the, the you know the famous Sun front pages of the 1992 campaign. If you if you can think back to then, and it's like Neil Kinnock's head in a light bulb, and their headline was, "If Kinnock wins today, the last person to leave Britain can turn out the lights." And, and and this was you know the sun the, the paper then subsequently boasted it was the it was the sun what won it very mm-hmm. famously, but it was certainly a, a, a milestone in, in mainstream newspaper coverage. But I think what what has happened is essentially that has become mainstreamed. Mm-hmm. Is that this idea that you know you talk about the way in which you talk about football mm-hmm. has moved to the front page, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's how we talk about our politics now. So if it becomes if it becomes a game, if it becomes trivial, if mm. it, if our politics is trivial and our journalism is trivial, mm. people's sense of trust or sense of trustworthiness uh, just goes out the window. To what extent do you think the news and the newspaper agendas and media agenda in particular, how much influence do you think that has on like our vote our voting choices and how this election could be won mm. through media? The research from the 2016 election um, showed that the one of the highest predictors of what way individuals would vote um, was their newspaper readership and I do think it comes back to language um, that language is powerful um, and even though I do think it's important in these discussions to always recognise that everyone is an agent themselves and autonomous in that we are not entirely ruled by um, our algorithms or the words that we read but we are very 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 strongly influenced by them um, and all of the data would show that so if you are consistently reading um, about the evils and risks and fears that could come to you from either a Johnson or a, gov- a Corbyn government um, or a DUP majority or a Sinn Féin majority, then you are more likely to um, be swayed in that direction. So the media is powerful. Um, and yeah, I think that's right. And it goes back to what we were talking about, confirmation bias. This yes. idea of how do you identify? Do you identify as a Daily Mirror mm-hmm. reader, a mm-hmm. traditional, well not anymore, but traditional union mm-hmm. background, or uh, do you identify as a Daily Express reader, in mm-hmm. which case you're what your uh, list of important parts of the election are different, are mm. going to be different. You're probably more driven by mm. stories about immigration, for example, mm. and, and uh, affected by those. But I think the, the way in which newspapers organize their coverage 
is also vitally important. And for example, we lost um, uh, skills like the political sketch writer. Mm. You know, the idea that somebody would just go and and sit in the gallery and just write a, a sketch, a parliamentary sketch for that day. Uh, and in a way, that's sort of been replaced by cartoonists mm. because the cartoonist is easily shareable. A cartoon, mm. a political cartoon, is easily shareable. It generates the clicks. Mm. Um, it's actually turned into a whole new genre of you know. I've just been on a flight. What did I miss? Mm. So when people land, they turn their phone on. The first thing. I mean, what, what's the first thing you go to? BBC News. Really? What's Not that? Twitter. 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 Because okay. mm. you get a. Certainly Twitter I get a takes real more sense. of my data. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, this is true. But certainly on Twitter, and the whole idea that you can tell instantly what other people are talking about, mm. the, the notion that something's trending, mm. and you're sort of thinking, okay, I, I should, I, I, it's probably insignificant, it's probably trivial, but I need to check it out just to know. Yeah. What, what do you go to when you get off the plane? See, I, I would, my, my automatic thought was Facebook, but then you mentioned Twitter, and it's like, probably Twitter. Yeah, mm. I'd probably go to the Explore page and... Or whatever that one is that's not my news feed yeah. see what's trending and then go and read what's been happening but I almost feel like you know using social media is almost like an echo chamber uh, also one other thing to think about Twitter is that you're setting the sources yourself yeah so you're choosing who to follow so you're choosing yeah. what news you get mm-hmm. so the, the, the personalization the way in which people think about sorry, where which people think about uh, I'm only consuming stories from people who feel the same way I do, for mm. example. So it emphasises the echo chamber. Mm. Another point that we, we kind of t- discussed before was how the written campaign now compares to general election of 2017 and also the Brexit referendum back in 2016. Do you, do you guys think that there is any comparison that we can have or... Um, is there similarities in some of the ways that it's being written about? Mm. Um, I would say there is a very clear difference between the 2017, 2017 campaign in Northern Ireland and the 2019 campaign in Northern Ireland. Um, and that is a result of, as we've talked about, um, just how central it's been in those two years and the very unexpected result um, that brought the DUP into centre stage. What we see this time is the beginnings of the evidence like we talked about of those kind of the cross-cutting effect of Brexit here. So that works from a DUP perspective. In 2017 they were advocating for special solutions for Northern Ireland that recognise its particular circumstances and now they are very strongly do not differentiate between us and Great Britain at all. We also see the UUP this time under new leadership much stronger um, openness to remain um, much more kind of aiming at a moderate unionism and a like a kind of front facing unionism something that stuck out to me was the votes for 16 year olds which mm-hmm. is a quite a non-conservative policy to have yeah. we're seeing the Brexit impact is evident in 2019 Northern Irish campaign no I, I, that's absolutely right and I think just in a, a British sense as well you mentioned mm. it yourself Jess about this idea that at the 2017 campaign, people thought this we'll get this done yeah. after this. That this, mm. you know, the reason May went to the country was to give her a, a cushion, to give her a, a more of a majority to be able to to have her way. But I think this election, it seems that there's more desperation. There's more mm. desperation on the part, particularly of the pro-Brexit uh, papers mm. as well. That they, you know, if you if you dare to cross Boris. 
at all, then you don't deserve Brexit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But also, going along with that, there seems to be more of a sense of people are thinking about further down the road Hmm. rather than, I know the get Brexit done thing is a very short-term thing, but people are thinking, well, what does this mean constitutionally for Hmm. us down Mm -hmm. the road? And this is why I mentioned earlier why I was so fascinated with what's going to happen in Scotland, Mm -hmm. because I think that is, rather than in a way, rather than anything that happens here, I think what happens in Scotland, for example, if the Tories get wiped out mm-hmm. in Scotland, if the SNP, mm-hmm. you know, basically runs the board. Mm-hmm. You know, the election is, as of recording, one week away today. What's, what's your predictions? I do think there will be a Conservative majority. Mm. That's my call, and it's not that radical. It's in line with mm. all, of the, all the trends we're seeing. I think for Northern Ireland, we will, there will be a more diverse group of MPs returned for Northern Ireland. Yeah. I think there will be. Um, I, I, I totally agree with that. And I, the markets agree mm. with you. The markets mm. certainly seem to be moving in a direction that expect um, Boris to have a working majority. Uh, I, I still can see us ending up pretty much where we are, mm. or, or he has a majority that's small enough that he can't you know, act independently uh, entirely. And as I say, there are two important things that I think um, that I'll be watching for. I mean, the first one's Scotland. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously yeah. what happens in Scotland has, has more of an impact on us. But I'm also intrigued by um, the effect of tactical voting mm, and yeah. how that plays itself mm-hmm. out, um, both here with mm-hmm. the pacts and the alignments, yeah. but also in the UK, mm-hmm. um, where the, the anti-conservative coalitions, mm. and, you know, the informal coalitions and tactical voting sites mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. We, I don't think we've ever seen an election where that could yeah. make a significant difference. Well, how, how do you see it? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, been, I've been kind of thinking about it, and, like, um, at this stage, I think that there will be a Conservative majority. Mm-hmm. Genuinely, I do. And, like, I'll prepare myself for that, because I would like to see the DUP kind of not have that confidence and supply. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of what's next in the next... We'll put a, we'll put a mark on it, five years for the written campaign because so much can change yeah. um, where do we see the written campaign being in the next five ten years well, you know, I, I still think as we were saying earlier we're still in a, in a, a, a situation where this is evolving and people's mm. consummation how, consummation, how mm. they consume mm. <laughs> how they consume their news is still evolving and still changing I mean, for example if we were having this uh, conversation a year ago we wouldn't even know what TikTok was, for example. <laughs> so everybody would be talking about, well, you know, how do you how do you establish a political pro- uh, profile on Instagram, mm-hmm. for example? And uh, you have to go where the voters are. Mm-hmm. And and again, you, you mentioned that votes for sixteen and seventeen year olds absolutely crucial, mm-hmm. absolutely crucial. If we want our entire country to buy into whatever happens next, whatever direction we go, mm. you can't just start out by ignoring people. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's absolutely going to be the, the, the enfranchisement of mm-hmm. all of our citizens is going to be a huge issue. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think uh, we aren't getting rid of the written campaign or written word in general anytime soon. Um, I think part, going back to that idea of the kind of anti-political and anti-establishment populist kind of narratives, I do think the natural um, next step in that is for people to re-engage and that will mean um, 
writing is required, accountability mm-hmm. in word um, is required and also if we can throw it back to the Brexit isn't going away and Brexit has revealed um, the technicalities of government um, and of international relations and how um, interdependent we all are and that means detail and that means mm-hmm. that means writing. And I had a discussion on how we would end the podcast since it is the final one before for the big vote next week um, and we are talking about um, our favourite campaign books Mine's was, and probably the only campaign book I've read at the at the tender age of 22, but it was Hillary Clinton's What Happened. Um, I think that was such a, an um, incredible read for someone who is so involved and so interested by US politics. Uh, and, like, obviously 2016 was a massive upset and, like, a massive thing to happen in the world so like reading about it and getting every, every bit of information I can about that that year is is really crucial so mm-hmm. that's my recommendation yeah I'm because I'm a wee bit older than you I'm going to go back <laughs> I'm going to go back one of my favourite um, uh, campaign books was about six campaign when uh, Bill Clinton beat Bob Doe mm-hmm. and it was called uh, Trail Fever by Michael Lewis mm-hmm. Uh, and more recently, actually, just on the US, uh, Niall Stanage, a good Northern Ireland fella, uh, wrote a terrific book about Barack Obama's uh, victory in 2008 called mm. Redemption Song. And that's, mm. that's a really good read. Excellent. Um, my recommendation, if you haven't already started following, um, or even if you're not on Twitter, get on Twitter to follow um, <laughs> at Border Irish uh, for a bit of light relief in the midst of the endless Brexit drama and my recommendation is the book I am the border so I am um, which is just it's hilarious and wonderful Love it. Um, I recommend I think we'll end it there you can follow Northern Slant at Northern Slant on Twitter um, and I think it's at Northern Slant on Facebook as well um, and you can also follow at Queen's Radio um, on Twitter and Queen's Radio Official on Facebook awesome. brilliant thank you very much for listening 